You're going to love this. Just love it. Yep. Stuck in the middle with you from Pacifica Radios, KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles. This is the broadcast, as heard on 90.7 FM, 98.7 FM in Santa Barbara, 93.7 FM San Diego, 99.5 FM in Ridgecrest and China Lake, 91.7 FM KYAQ on the beautiful Oregon Central Coast, Coast to coast and around the globe on kpfk.org. On the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, Radio or Not, Radio Free Brooklyn, and five days a week on Radio Sputnik. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all around. Swell fellow from bradblog.com. Thank you for joining us for another thrilling action-packed adventure. We've got some breaking news as we go to air here concerning uh, South Carolina and uh, in a, in a few minutes we will also be speaking there there it's not just on the Republican side of the equation that there is discord. We've been talking about a lot of discord of course since Donald Trump has uh, entered the race and and changed my life really for the better. Have I have I mentioned that? <laughs> I think I, he's changed a lot of lives yes, in the media and entertainment and comedy. It was a, it was a dreary uh, couple of weeks until Donald Trump got in, and now everything is everything is better. Are you going to start singing "You Light Up My Life"? I might. Now? I might. <laughs> I might. Uh, but it's not just on the Republican side uh, that uh, things are a mess. Uh, we'll talk about the Democrats in a little bit. And we, we talked a little bit earlier this week about what happened over the weekend at, at a progressive conference out in Phoenix. Well, the woman who led a very lively progressive Black Lives Matter protest against Democratic presidential candidates Martin O'Malley and Bernie Sanders over the weekend at that conference, uh, she will be here to discuss that. Tia Oso of the BlackAlliance.org group to discuss that and the controversy among progressives that have uh, come along with those protests. We'll talk about that in a little bit. And we got some other news about Democrats and the presidential race shortly. Uh, but this just in breaking uh, Dylan Roth. And yes, as I understand, that's how you pronounce his name. Roth, not Roof. Happy to change that if I learn otherwise. But uh, Dylan Roth, the man who is said to have confessed to the nine murders at the AME Church in Charleston, South Carolina in June, has now been charged with 33 federal counts, including federal hate crimes charges on Wednesday. This was announced by Attorney General Loretta Lynch. She said uh, Dylan Roth sought out African-Americans, in particular the African-American uh, Church, Emmanuel AME, because of its historic significance. 
She said to carry out these twin goals of fanning racial flames and exacting revenge, Roth further decided to seek out and murder African-Americans because of their race. An essential element of his plan, however, was to find victims inside of a church, specifically an African-American church, to ensure the greatest notoriety and attention to his actions. Attorney General Lynch said no decision has been made yet whether to seek the death penalty or not. So hate crimes uh, is part of what he has uh, now been charged with. 33 counts. Uh, Not terrorism, it seems, however. And this is just breaking. I haven't gotten a look at the charges themselves. But I don't understand. Maybe I just don't understand the difference between hate crimes and uh, uh, domestic terrorism. Because this sure as hell seems like domestic terrorism to me. If you look at 18 U.S. Code Section 2331... It defines domestic terrorism for purposes of Chapter 113B of the Code, entitled Terrorism, defines domestic terrorism this way. It says, activities with the following three characteristics. One, involve acts dangerous to human life that violate federal or state law. Obviously, that one is uh, is clear. Two, appear intended to intimidate or coerce a civilian population. And three occur primarily within the territory uh, uh, jurisdiction of the U.S. So those are the three things, the three characteristics. And I guess the one in question here was, was this act intended to intimidate or coerce a civilian population? Well, we know, according to reports, and, uh, you know, Loretta Lynch obviously knows this case better than I do. But according to reports, uh, he had a witness said that he had left one of the people alive in this church so that she could tell the story to others. That would seem to be uh, meant to appear to intimidate or, frankly, coerce a civilian population. And then if you look at this guy's manifesto that he posted online before he pulled off this massacre, uh, some terribly ugly things in it, and I, I won't give you uh, the worst of it, but as to coercing a civilian population... He writes, who is fighting for these white people forced by economic circumstances to live among Negroes? No one, but someone has to. It is far from being too late for America or Europe. I believe that even if we made up only 30% of the population, we could take it back completely. But by no means should we wait any longer to take drastic action. We have no one doing anything but talking on the Internet. Well, someone has to have the bravery to take it to the real world, and I guess that has to be me. I, I, you know, I don't know. To me, that sounds like someone who is trying to coerce the civilian population, to coerce a, uh, you know, a, a political outcome in this matter. Uh, You know, another section of here, this defines uh, domestic terrorism as to influence the policy of a government by intimidation or coercion to affect the conduct of government by mass destruction, assassination or kidnapping. So I don't know. Um, And and to be frank, I I, it's it's not like I, I want more charges against this guy. He's got 33 charges, hate crimes included, which allows him to be put to death by the government if he's found guilty, if they so choose to seek the death penalty. But it just uh, seems uh, terribly disturbing to me that uh, 
you know, terrorism is used in certain cases, but not others is, is, you know, the, the shooting last week in Chattanooga was, you know, immediately declared uh, to be a possible uh, uh, domestic terrorism, but not this. I don't get it. Well, it, as I mentioned, when the Chattanooga shooting, shooting first came out, and I, and I really was men, meaning it off the cuff, it did seem to be directly related to the race or ethnicity of the shooter and the race or ethnicity of the targets you and mean the, the location. The fact that they were saying that this was a potential terrorism. Right, immediately, right off the bat, right. in the Chattanooga Navy, Arch, uh, Navy Recruitment Station mm-hmm. shooting. And yet, for, this, uh, for the, the South Carolina Charleston Church shooting, that was not the case, and it still appears apparently is not the case. It does seem to be focused directly on, and that's, you know... If you have a Middle Eastern name and you commit a crime, then it's terrorism. And if you don't, then it's not. Right. I, I know. That's what it seems to come down to. And that's... That is something I think the Department of Justice needs to address. I think so, but here you have the Department of Justice, the head of the Department of Justice, uh, Attorney General General uh, uh, Attorney General Loretta Lynch, saying, nope, not terrorism, hate crime. Okay. Uh, clearly it was a hate crime. But, uh, you know, what is domestic terrorism then? I, I, I guess I don't get it. All right. Um, we will uh, look into that as the days and months go on, I suspect. Uh, getting back for a moment to the uh, discord in the Democratic Party. Uh, what I wanted to talk about, wanted to bring out, uh, you know, we've been talking about the polls. We've been talking about uh, Donald Trump uh, soaring in the polls now uh, by a long by a long margin, huge margin now uh, defeating both Scott Walker and uh, Jeb Bush in national polls. Well, there's a lot going on on the Democratic side, and it's not being talked about much. So uh, let me uh, bring this up here. This is uh, today a new poll out from, uh, I believe this is Quinnipiac. Yeah, Quinnipiac University poll. Finds that Clinton, Hillary Clinton, not only lags among voters in swing states, but that she would lose or tie for the presidency against three leading Republican hopefuls if the elections were held today in those three states key swing states. This is a Quinnipiac University poll released on Wednesday, finding Clinton has strikingly negative favorability ratings among voters in Virginia, Iowa and Colorado, especially compared with where she stood in just a few months ago in the spring. The numbers come at a time when Clinton has a massive fundraising lead, relatively weak competition for the Democratic nomination and more federal government experience than any other candidate. Even with these advantages, the poll shows Clinton may be vulnerable in states that by all accounts will have an outsized say in who wins the White House next year. Now, never mind how relatively weak the competition for the Democratic nomination is or isn't when it comes to Bernie. They're talking about Bernie Sanders there. Yes, uh, he's actually uh, making a play in those uh, those early primary states. But nationally, she still has a huge lead among Democrats. But uh, when it comes in uh, head to head here, uh, Bush, Jeb Bush fares the best in Virginia, where 43 percent of voters view him favorably. Colorado and Iowa voters appear more skeptical of Bush. He is, however, at the top of the pack in favorability, but half or almost half of voters in those states view him unfavorably. In head-to-head matchups with Bush, Walker, and Rubio, Clinton would lose by as many as nine points. 
Wow. Nine points in Colorado and Iowa. In Virginia, where Governor Terry McAuliffe, her, uh, Hillary Clinton's longtime friend and fundraiser, has endorsed her enthusiastically, Clinton would still be defeated by those Republicans, but by only two or three percentage points in Virginia, making that uh, race too close to call at the moment. Uh, deeper in the poll, says Washington Post, uh, half or more than half of Virginia voters say Clinton is not honest and trustworthy and does not care about their needs and problems, though 54 percent say she is a strong leader. On the Democratic side, uh, oh, Vice President Biden does well in all three of these uh, swing states, but he has not said yet whether he will run or not. People forget he could get in this race, Joe Biden. That would be fun. I'd love to see that. All right. But uh, Clinton, you know, everyone is distracted by uh, Donald Trump on the Republican side. Understandably, it's really fun. Uh, Yeah, I've been uh, enjoying it immensely. But while we have no clue, literally no clue who the Republican Party nomination would be, the Republicans feel pretty strongly that the Democratic uh, nominee is going to be Hillary Clinton. And they have been focusing their fire on her for a long time and trying to erode uh, the belief that she is uh, trustworthy and honest and so forth uh, through the uh, silly. Well, we'll see how silly, silly email scandal uh, and other things. They've all had their eyes on that prize, and they've been uh, working on her, wearing her down, and uh, her favorability has dropped precipitously. Her trustworthiness has dropped precipitously over the past several months. So as much as we want to make fun of the Republicans, and Lord knows we should, they are, to some extent, uh, doing the job they need to do. Speaking of polls and slumping in the polls, um, growing conservative disaffection with Pope Francis appears to be taking its toll on the once Teflon grade popularity of the Pope here in the U.S., according to the Religion News Service. A new Gallup poll shows the pontiff's favorability rating among all Americans dropping to 59 percent from a 76 percent peak early last year. Among conservatives, however, the drop-off has been especially sharp for some reason. Can't imagine why. Yeah, what could that possibly Just, be? Just uh, 45% view Francis now favorably today as opposed to 72% a year ago. So since since, his, it, since he put out his encyclical yeah. on the environment, yeah. calling on all people of yeah. goodwill to take care of the planet and yeah. our, our shared ecosystem that we all rely on, our only life support system in the universe, by calling for that. Oh, they hate that. Oh, the, the Republicans oh, the hate con- that. Yeah. Well, and I would say they're not really conservative. Also, the uh, the decline, uh, so according to Gallup, they say that the decline may also be attribu- attributable to the Pope's denouncing of, quote, the idolatry of money. Oh, well, that yeah, that's definitely going to get uh, Republicans and conservatives to, to be not angry be happy about, about that. that. Yes, yeah. that the Pope, the leader of the Catholic Church, is against the idolatry of money. Somehow this has made them turn against the Pope. That's the bridge too far. Yes. Uh, And uh, let's see. Oh, and also attributing uh, climate change uh, partially to human activity and the passionate focus on income inequality. This has uh, turned the Catholics, uh, I I should say, turned the conservatives against the Pope. But also um, liberal fervor has cooled as well for the Pope, according to this uh, Gallup poll. Uh, dropping an average of 14 points. 
Some observers have predicted that many who embrace the Pope's candor and his views on a range of social justice issues would temper their ardor as they realized he's not going to change church teachings on hot button issues like abortion or contraception or gay marriage. That's according to this Gallup poll and uh, the reason why uh, both conservatives and liberals are turning against the Pope. Isn't that funny? They're not actually turning. Uh, he still has huge favorability uh, rating. Um, but this has happened all relatively recently, uh, according to a Pew Research Center survey, which finds that last February, uh, the Pope's approval rating among all Americans was at 70 percent and at a remarkable 90 percent among all Catholics. And that number has been steadily decreasing. Not with me. <laughs> I still like old uh, Papa Frank. So, uh, okay. Anyway, a lot of disruption, a lot of polls. And uh, speaking of that disruption, once again, in the Democratic Party, we're going to get back to that after a quick break here. Uh, And we will be joined by Tia Oso to explain what the hell happened in Phoenix over the weekend. I'm Brad Friedman, and this is your Bradcast. Hey, this is Brad. Do you enjoy your non-corporatized, commercial-free Bradcast? Yeah, me too. But we need your help to stay that way. Please consider supporting the investigative blogging, broadcasting, and muckraking that we do here on the Bradcast and the Green News Report and bradblog.com with a donation. It's easy. Stop by bradblog.com donate and drop a few dollars in the tip jar. You can make a one-time contribution or an automatic monthly donation of any amount you like. It's easy. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you'll help me and Desi stay on the air to continue our troublemaking and muckraking without the corporate influence of anyone. Got it? Thanks. Stop by bradblog.com slash donate to help us out today. Okay, welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. We, we spoke on Monday on this program about what happened over the weekend at the Netroots Nation Conference in Phoenix, Arizona. Netroots is a, uh, a collection of progressive activists uh, who meet every year in one city or another and d- uh, discuss progressive issues. Uh, often have uh, presidential candidates show up there this weekend. They had Martin O'Malley, former governor of Maryland and uh, uh, former mayor of Baltimore, actually, Martin O'Malley, as well as Bernie Sanders, Senator Bernie Sanders, who has been burning up the uh, burning up the country when it comes to uh, a turnout for his candidacy, his challenge against Hillary Clinton. In any event, uh, both of those men were disrupted, if you will, during the uh, during a conference uh, 
a forum, I should say, held and moderated by Jose Antonio Vargas, ostensibly concerning immigration. But it was disrupted by a group of protesters, a large group of protesters, who took over the event when Martin O'Malley was speaking and uh, continued to hang on to it for about 15 or 20 minutes as they were demanding answers from O'Malley uh, and trying to make their point concerning Black Lives Matter. Here's a bit of audio of uh, one of the leaders of that protest, Tia Oso, of the Black Alliance for Just Immigration, as she uh, as she came up on the stage and and took the event over in, sen- in a sense. So right now, here today, we want to take a moment at Netroots to acknowledge the lives lost every 28 hours, but specifically the black women's lives that are lost. How many hours? Every, how many hours? every 28 hours. Every 28 hours. Okay, yes. black woman, man, or child. If we're going to call this a progressive space, we must always and unapologetically and unequivocally center black leadership that has made every single gain of progress in this country. You're right. So we are going to hold this space. We are going to acknowledge the names of black women that have died in police custody. And then, Governor O'Malley, we do have questions for you about what is your agenda going to be to make sure that black lives do matter and that as the leader of this nation, will you advance a racial justice agenda that will dismantle, not reform, okay? Not make progress, but that will begin to dismantle structural racism in the United States. That was Tia Oso speaking at the Netroots Nation conference, taking it over during a a very lively protest. A lot of supporters there and a lot of detractors there, a lot of folks who were upset that uh, the the forum with uh, Governor O'Malley and then again about uh, 15, 20 minutes later with with Bernie Sanders was disrupted. Now, I described on Monday on this program how I thought, frankly, the protests were fantastic. Uh, I don't care that it upset people. I-, I thought they were great, if only because I love democracy in action. I-, I love when people take the stage. I love when people force their issues to the forefront. Uh, and also, by the way, this whole thing was by way of contrast with what you might have seen at a, you know, a right-wing uh, conference like CPAC or something, where protesters like that are not only tossed out, Uh, you know, they're grabbed by goons and never heard from again. That didn't happen here. So they were, in in many respects, embraced, brought up on the stage, and, uh, as I said, allowed to pretty much take take over the forum. They weren't hustled out by security goons, and they were even allowed to stay after Martin O'Malley to do uh, a similar disruption of Bernie Sanders. Now, that all irritated a number of otherwise good progressives, as I said, uh, speaking, uh, posting over at Bradblog.com. Ernie Canning, who is a big Bernie Sanders fan, I'm sure he wasn't uh, happy about uh, Bernie being interrupted here. Uh, He left a comment. He said, I don't think the emotional rants were fantastic, Brad. It's one thing to ask for an opportunity to ask questions and expect answers and quite another to heckle only to hear your own chance without any desire to hear the answers. What, in reality, did those emotional rants accomplish, he asks. Certainly not the type of meaningful interactions that are essential to democracy and meaningful democratic discourse. For Bernie Sanders, he he writes, black lives have always mattered. He was arrested in 1962 when, as a member of the Congress for Racial Equality, known as CORE, he took part in civil rights demonstrations. 
another writer, uh, Chicago Mel, says, I believe there is a widely building national conversation on our current civil rights failings and on minority empowerment, but I felt the Netroots incident may have started the wrong conversation. Badgering one's committed political allies is hard to fathom and is usually not a very effective strategy in either the short or long run. Now, MoveOn.org came out in support of the protest, as did uh, some of the organizers of the Netroots Nations uh, conference itself. So who's right? Who's wrong? And, and frankly, uh, what was this protest all about? Did it accomplish what it was, uh, what it was meant to accomplish? I uh, want to bring on someone who, who may be somewhat biased on that account, but we'll find out. Uh, she was the one who led these protests at the Netroots Nation. Tia Oso is National Coordinator for Black Alliance for Just Immigration, a racial justice and migrant rights organization. She has organized campaigns such as Phoenix for Trayvon and others. She appeared earlier this week at the National Bar Association Conference out here in Los Angeles to discuss immigration issues, and she joins us on the broadcast now. Tia Oso, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you for having me, Brad. Uh, thank you for coming. Now, did you accomplish what you had hoped to do with your protests of, uh, of, of Martin O'Malley and Bernie Sanders at Netroots Nation? And, and what did you hope to accomplish with that? Um, so, <clears throat> thank you for uh, having me on and uh, opening up the dialogue about this in the kind of aftermath, right, of uh, the action that we took on Saturday. So mm-hmm. first off, sure. I'll take the opportunity to say that it, the action is a demonstration under the uh, theme of Say Her Name, which is a national campaign introduced by Black Youth Project 100 mm-hmm. um, in order to uplift systems of police violence for our black women. Um, and so the context of the Netroots Town Hall was chosen um, as the site, right, and moment of the action, that it in no way, shape, or form was a protest against uh, former Governor O'Malley or Senator Sanders. Well, um, so yeah. having, having said that, yeah. um, I do think that we definitely accomplished what we set out to do and that we were able to hold the space, we were able to share um, the needs of black women that were killed in police custody, as well as express our um, anguish and our grief um, and outrage um, about this really epidemic right of police violence that's happening in our communities, as well as to have the opportunity to present these questions directly to these potential presidential candidates to have them answer to us, you know, in this state of emergency, um, what is it that they plan to do about it? And and how do you feel they? Uh, how do you rate the response from uh, Martin O'Malley and then from Bernie Sanders? So I'm not a political analyst to know how exactly to read it. I can share from my personal perspective that I was very um, surprised um, at how unprepared they seemed to answer the question and uh, really respond and empathize and connect with what it is that we were saying. I mean, um, we are at a progressive space conference. This was my first time attending Netroots, but from Netroots Veterans, I learned that there's always some sort of a demonstration or deception during the town hall. <laughs> so the fact that they seem to be very caught off guard, I personally was um, really dismayed that uh, folks who are seeking the highest office in the land aren't ready to take on these really tough issues. Um, and so, you know, my community and my generation really the primary issue affecting us today. Do you think that they weren't ready to take on these issues, or do you think they just weren't ready for 
you know, b- being challenged in that way, that they didn't expect to be challenged. They were coming to what they thought was a, a generally, uh, a, you know, friendly crowd there of progressives at Netroots. Uh, I mean, uh, Bernie Sanders. Now, you, you heard me at the top here. I think what you guys did is fantastic. So don't get me wrong, but I, I, I do want to challenge you a little bit. I mean, Bernie Sanders has, you know, for 50 years uh, a powerful record on civil rights and human rights, uh, you know, going way back. It seems like he's prepared to deal with this issue. Uh, maybe was surprised uh, that you guys showed up and interrupted. And I agree. He was quite dismissive in, in some sense and, and, and clearly frustrated. But are you really concerned that Bernie Sanders uh, is not on the same page with the Black Lives Matter movement? Uh, or do you think he was just caught off guard here? I think that it's a little, uh, several things happening at one time, right? So, um, number one, again, from what has been told to me, because it was my first net roots, there's always a disruption, there's always some type of uh, confrontation of some sort in the town hall. So, had his, had either candidate's staff been very prepared for the space, um, I don't think that they would have, should have been too shocked that they addressed in some type of way, especially with the uh, title of the event being the town hall, right? Um, also, I think that uh, uh, Senator Sanders' record, um, his policy record is not what was in question at all. Um, we're talking about moving forward. We're talking about right now what's happening. What is it that um, both of the candidates were prepared to do? And also to respond to our pain, we were wanted to call the question in a very urgent way, especially mm-hmm. because Sandra Gland um, had just been found hanging in police custody in Texas that Sunday. And up until that moment, neither candidate had addressed it. I got gotcha. you. The uh, one of the comments that elicited a, a huge response, I think we got a, a clip here, uh, Des, the short version of this uh, was was Governor O'Malley when he when he responded to uh, to to what you guys were talking about, to Black Lives Matter. Uh, he he sort of repeated his record as a uh, as the mayor of Baltimore and as governor of Maryland, what he did, what he felt he did uh, to deal with race uh, racism there. Uh, and then he made a comment that all lives matter. I want to want to play this clip and then get your response to it. And, and so you can explain to me how he got this wrong. Every life matters. And that is why this issue is so important. Black lives matter. White lives matter. All lives matter. Black lives matter. White lives matter. All lives matter. That was Governor O'Malley responding to the uh, res- responding to the protest, saying all lives matter, white lives, black lives matter, white lives matter. I think Hillary Clinton uh, at one point gave a similar response. Um, what's wrong with that response, Tia Oso, to the uh, black lives matter uh, cry by saying all lives matter, including white lives? Um, so I think that, <clears throat> excuse me, I think that, there isn't anything wrong with in the course of expecting yourself for you to affirm all human lives. Um, I think that what he got wrong about it was the context and the context of the question. We're talking about structural racism. And so to um, equivocate or dismiss or erase, right, the Black Lives Matter, you know, uh, how are you going to address and make sure that Black Lives Matter in the context of, you know, race and systemic racism in the United States, 
than to say, you know, to try to shift and be um, skip over the actual significance of what's happening in black communities. That is the mistake. It's not, you know, just the saying of the word. That's not what it is. It's the skipping over and erasure of the actual issues that we're addressing at the moment. It's very similar to if you were at, say, uh, you know, a rally around, you know, the AIDS epidemic to also get up and say, well, you know, what we really need to be talking about, right, is obesity. That's also important. Imagine how people would feel. So, so it's not that white lives uh, don't matter. It's just that uh, that kind of response just uh, just cancels out the argument, cancels out the case that, that, that you're trying to make, it sounds like. It ends the conversation, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Of course, I stand for the human dignity and rights of all people. Mm-hmm. Now, At I'll... no point in time would it be acceptable to me for anybody on the planet to be subject to especially state violence, mm-hmm. and it just be dismissed and ignored at no point in time. Now I know that a lot of the uh, a lot of the critics, and again, these are progressives with whom you probably agree far more than you disagree. A lot of the critics, you know, I've seen have said, "Well, you know, why are you protesting Democrats? It's Republicans, the Republican candidates. There's uh, 27 of them out there. Uh, you know, w- why aren't you protesting them?" Um, or is that either pointless or counterproductive somehow to uh, to protest? Is it more uh, more productive to bring this fight home to progressives and to the Democratic Party? Um, so I've not uh, tried to focus too much on like you know a lot of the negative comments and backlash um, because I don't want to take it personally. Mm-hmm. I know that the direct confrontation, especially in a room full of some uh, political candidate supporters, right, definitely going to elicit a reaction, some of it very emotional and um, uh, almost like reflexively reactionary. So I understand, you know, folks are emotional in this context, um, but I don't think that it's valid at all to try to say that um, the, the net route wasn't the appropriate venue to do direct action, you know, in the sense of uh, black lives. Um, African Americans and black immigrants have been adversely affected under policies um, by Republicans as well as Democrats. Um, I think that even the fact that we have uh, right now an African American president and President Obama, mm-hmm. and we're seeing this huge surge and epidemic right of police violence and, you know, some of the largest mass movement around racial justice at any point in time should give us a pretty healthy understanding and context about the fact that um, at no point in time nobody should be let off the hook because they generally espouse beliefs that are favorable to your cause. I think that what's happening in our community um, is evidence enough itself and the fact that we have to really force this moral issue and this confrontation in order for it to even be acknowledged, right, challenges what we mean by when we say progressive space. If what it takes for us all to be on the same team, quote, unquote, in the same side, is for me to sit and silently suffer and die, then at no, then I just don't agree that that is what progressive space is, actually. And I think it was 100% appropriate for us to disrupt. I've got uh, just a minute or two left, uh, Tia Oso, uh, since you mentioned Barack Obama. Uh, what, in, and never mind a, a, a presidential candidate and the lack of 
power that they may or may not have. Um, but, you know, what of Barack Obama? What what hard policies would you like to see either by uh, by the president uh, brought forward or and or, I suppose, by the presidential candidates in this case, Martin O'Malley, Bernie Sanders, uh, Hillary Clinton, all of the folks on the Republican side. Uh, in, in, other, in other words, what can a politician actually do to address the systemic racism that you are talking about? Are there policies that can be implemented that will, uh, that will change this equation, change this trajectory, as you'd like to see it, Tia? Definitely. Thank you for asking that. So um, I think that in response um, to the um, movement for black lives and the courageous, you know, black men and women and communities that are really, you know, demanding action and change, we're already seeing a shift and a focus and we're determined to continue. Um, we've seen President Obama respond by um, sending the Department of Justice right to investigate um, cases on the ground. We've seen um, him create the task force on 21st century policing, and then we've seen him take the executive action that he could take in um, addressing some of the military equipment that is distributed at the local level, right? So those mm -hmm. are responses to me that have been kind of measured, but actual, you know, movement that you can validate and you can review and see if it makes a difference. Um, I think that as far as candidates are concerned, everyone is in the midst of developing their policy positions. I think that one of the things that everyone can do is to really get educated on the issues. Um, and then also in places and times and spaces where they have the opportunity to talk to people who are being affected, um, to sit down and do that and build a relationship. Um, I know that politics is a lot of a lot of different things happening at one time. Um, but I do notice that when it's campaign season, you see people out on the ground in communities that where it's important, shaking hands, sitting down, listening, you know, and really, you know, affirming and validating people's experiences. Um, and so I think that it would be um, really good to have not just a show, okay, so not just a demonstration of, you know, going out in black communities and shaking hands and taking pictures, but both really sitting down and listening to these communities and then also um, researching the policies um, that will help to advance the agenda to make some of these collections. And one of the ways that um, budgets, for example, are set um, is very racialized. A lot of the ways things like redistricting and voting districts um, are, are drawn. All of these, a lot of different factors are coming into play um, leading up to, you know, the violence that we see happening against black communities at the hands of police. Um, so I think it's a complicated issue that deserves um, and definitely needs to be invested in and evaluated, um, especially by politicians and folks who make our, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, make the world that society. It, you know, it seems like we've seen a real shift, and I, I've been talking about this over the past few weeks. You know, with all of these, uh, you know, not just the, the the protests, but the you know the videos of the, of these killings, these shootings, and mm -hmm. so forth that uh, have come out. Obviously, they are you know terrible, horrible, grotesque. But the fact that they are coming out, the fact that we are seeing them uh, with such regularity, I realize it's somewhat counterintuitive because we're seeing, you know, so much violence against the uh, uh, the black community. But on the other hand, we're finally seeing it. 
and it, it feels to me like there's 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 a change happening and uh, that we're seeing actually now for the first time in many years a real shift along with the you know the rise of the Black Lives Matters movement. Uh, do, do you agree that's the case or is the media and the politicians and everyone else still so horribly behind in dealing with the facts uh, of this issue as you see it? Are you, are you hopeful or discouraged at this point, I guess, is the question. Um, I'm always going to remain hopeful. I believe that uh, people motivated by love um, and even protest and taking action right is rooted in hope. It's rooted in the fact that we believe that things can change. Um, I think that it's heartbreaking to me and very hurtful to me that it takes people seeing explicitly the brutalization and murder of people to even begin to talk about these issues. Mm -hmm. um, and it reminds me, you know, as a student and studying of the civil rights movement of how um, when across America, you know, the news reports would show, you know, um, the protesters in the South being uh, uh, attacked by dogs and mm -hmm. uh you know, sprayed with uh, high power water hoses, but that is when the conversation started to shift about maybe there is an issue in the South and maybe something does need to be done in the highest levels of our government about um, what's happening in black communities. And so I think it's very similar and a very, um, it is definitely an echo of ways that progress has been made in the past. Um, but quite honestly and personally, um, as an African-American woman who grew up um, and is dealing with systemic racism and violence and the results of it in my family and in my community, I think that when we say these things, our words should be enough. We talk a lot. There are a lot of town halls. We have NAACP and the Urban League at the national level having these conversations all the time. Reports are issued, um, and the fact that it takes, you know, this almost a spectacle of black suffering for people to even have their hearts moved is heartbreaking to me. It is. Uh, but I thank you, Tia Oso, for raising hell about it uh, in in any forum necessary. Tia Oso, National Coordinator of Black Alliance for Just Immigration. You can uh, find her on the Twitters at Tia underscore Oso. You can find Black Alliance at B-A-G-I tweet on the Twitters. And, of course, on their website, blackalliance.org. Tia, great talking to you today. Keep up the good work. Keep raising hell. Great talking to you as well. Thank you for the support. You bet. All right. You know, it's it's amazing how many people are upset uh, by democracy. You know, it's this is the way uh, things should be. We should have a, a scrappy democracy. We shouldn't have, you know, parties all marching in lockstep. Lord knows they're not doing that on the Republican side. Well, actually, they sort of are. Other than Donald Trump, they're all kind of lockstep. They have different flavors of the exact same thing. But uh, but listen, I am happy to see a um, a robust fight on the progressive side, not just between, you know, Hillary and uh, and Bernie Sanders, but people holding their feet to the fire, whether it's Bernie, whether it's Hillary, whether it's Martin O'Malley. It's what democracy is about, man. We don't need a coronation here of Hillary Clinton. And we don't need, by the way, a coronation of Bernie Sanders either. Hold feet to the fire. That's what these uh, that's what these campaigns are supposed to be about. 
and then, yes, answer back, uh, as uh, Zaid Jelani did. 20 examples of Bernie Sanders' powerful record on civil and human rights since the 1950s. You can read that over at Alternet. Yes, he has been very good on these issues. Uh, anyway, let's have it out. I'm all in favor of it. Take a quick break, and we'll come back with uh, much more, and, and perhaps one of the reasons why we have such trouble having it out in this country. Money and politics. Brad Friedman. This is your Bradcast. Stay tuned. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. So we're talking about as long as it's uh, beat up on Democrats Day here today on the broadcast, which, uh, <laughs> frankly, it should be every day. Sure. Uh, but in any event, uh, you know, as long as we're talking about the difference between what it is that the candidates, uh, you know, are campaigning on and what it is that the American public wants, whether it's the rank and file public, whether it's, you know, a, a, a more specific interest like uh, uh, Tia Oso that we were speaking to who has very specific issues of concern to her. Uh, we have this huge gap between what it is that candidates do, what it is that elected officials do, and what it is that the people want. And what explains what explains that difference? Well, probably money. Uh, Ernie Canning, again, uh, our legal uh, an analyst over at bradblog.com, has written about this, has talked about the democracy deficit as Noam Chomsky calls it, and, you know, the difference between what the politicians do and what it is that the people want. And I'll give you some numbers on that in a moment, but let's look at some of those at some of those numbers and where we are in this particular 2016 race. I was trying to get to this last week. Uh, this uh, some new the, we, we ended the uh, the quarter and so the candidates had to report to the FEC how they did on fundraising while Hillary Clinton hauled in forty seven and a half million dollars in the first three months of her official campaign, beating both uh, Jeb Bush, who raised eleven point four million and Bernie Sanders, who racked up fifteen point two million dollars. She had more than two hundred and fifty thousand donors. That's a lot of donors. It's impressive. Um, but she reported raising uh just eight million of that forty-seven million from small donors who gave less than two hundred dollars, two hundred dollars or less. So sixteen point eight percent of her total came from small donors. All the rest came from people who who donated uh, the maximum amount, who could afford to donate the maximum amount. In this case, twenty-six hundred dollars, or from big donors who who bundled uh, things together. I'll get to that in a moment. Now I don't know about you. I don't have $2,600 to give to any candidate for anything, ever. Uh, so, you know, most Americans, they'll give $200 or less. Uh, she received, as I said, 16.8% from that group. Not bad. Jeb Bush raised only 3% of his campaign cash from small donors of $200 or less. But Bernie Sanders... Blew them both away. He took in 10.4 million, 68 percent, 68 percent of his war chest came from small donors 
who gave two hundred dollars or less. Wow, that's 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 a massive difference. So you oh, said it's huge. Jeb yeah. was at three percent from small donors. Right. Hillary at sixteen percent. Hillary from- at sixteen percent, and and she was crowing about that. That this was a an impressive number, and I I guess it is, sixteen percent. Uh, but yeah, he's not even sixty eight percent came from small donors for, uh, Bernie, for Sanders. Bernie Sanders. Wow. Yeah. Um. The, the, the bulk of uh, Clinton's campaign funds came from this uh, wealthy class of uh, elite donors, according to Mother Jones. And uh, let's see, Bush's campaign raised more than 80 percent of its cash from those rich, uh, from those really, really wealthy donors. In 2014, roughly 0.04 percent of Americans were able to make that maximum donation, that $2,600 donation. Point, wait, wait. 0.04. 0.04. That's how, yeah. That's Less how than ma- one half of one percent of Americans. Right. Yeah. So we're talking about a, a tiny number. Uh, and yet, uh, this is uh, 80% of what Bush raised, J- uh, Jeb Bush, came from, uh, from them, and uh, 64% of what Clinton raised came from them. Uh, also, it should be noticed here that 40... 40 registered lobbyists bundled money uh, over $2 million to uh, to Hillary Clinton. By way of comparison, Bush's campaign listed the names of eight registered lobbyists who bundled uh, $228,000 for his campaign. Of course, he got in, uh, I believe, a bit later. Uh, so there'll, there'll be more from uh, lobbyists for Jeb Bush. Bet your bottom dollar. In the meantime, Bernie Sanders had zero registered lobbyists fundraising on his behalf now how does that money you know we hear about this all the time money in politics uh these huge these these wealthy donors how does that uh affect policy on a practical level well uh sean mcelwee of uh, demos we had him on the show a few weeks ago uh he pointed out uh this chart this looks like it's from uh oh it's from uh, from demos the the jobs and income, the policy preferences of affluent people versus the general public. So let me give you a couple of examples. Uh, and these are relative you know, policies you would think pretty much everyone in America would agree with. OK, government must see that no one is without food, clothing or shelter. Doesn't seem to me to be particularly uh uh, controversial, controversial that people yeah. should have food, food children shelter, should not right? go hungry. But I guess, you know, that government is, is, is they're responsible to, to see to that. Well, 43 percent of the wealthy believe that just 43 percent. On the other hand, the general public in favor of that, 68 percent, 68 percent agree the government must see that no one is without food, clothing or shelter, but just 43 percent of the rich. Minimum wage is high; should be high enough so that no family with a full-time worker falls below the official poverty line. Well, only 40% of rich people think that. 78% of the general public believe that, that uh, the minimum wage should be high enough. You got someone working in your family, you shouldn't be in poverty, says 78% of the public, but only 40% of the rich people. Uh, the government should provide a decent standard of living for the unemployed. 50% of Americans believe that, just 23% of the wealthy. Uh, here's a stunning number. The government in Washington ought to see to it that everyone who wants work can find a job. 
68%, huge majority, 68% of the government, uh, uh, I'm sorry, of the American public uh, agrees, just 19% of the wealthy. Wow, so you're supposed to pull yourself up by your bootstraps without any boots or any straps. Correct. Wow. Yes, of course. And of course, mind you, you know, these are wealthy people. They've uh, they've already climbed the ladder, and what is it? They're pulling up their, the ladder behind them. The, yeah, the hell with everyone else. Uh, the earned income tax credit should be increased rather than decreased or kept the same. 49% of the American public agree, just 13% of the wealthy agree. And finally, the federal government should provide jobs for everyone able and willing to work who cannot find a job in private employment. 53% of the public agree, just 8% of the wealthy. It's almost as if the wealthy thinks government should do much less. As if the wealthy doesn't need government to do anything for them, so the hell with everyone else. Almost uh, as if. Yeah, almost as if. All right, one more point here before we go. Um, uh, we had uh, Dr. Yosef Brody on uh, on the program earlier this week talking about the American Psychological Association's collusion with the Bush administration concerning torture after 9-11, torture by the CIA and the Department of Defense, uh, and how the APA, the top uh, medical uh, psychological uh, association in the country, in the world, actually, was in the, you know, in cahoots with the Bush administration to pretend that the torture that was going on, these so-called enhanced interrogation techniques, that they were uh, safe and effective and that uh, you didn't have anything to worry about from a psychological standpoint. Turns out that was complete and utter nonsense. And uh, the top, some folks at the very top of the APA knew this and they were thrown in with the Bush administration, telling them what they wanted to hear. Uh, and uh, there was this huge uh, new 540-page uh, report about this. Well, in the conversation uh, with Dr. Yosef Brody on this show, you can go back and listen to it. It was great. He, he had mentioned at one point that um, that the torture is still going on. And we didn't get to get into that. And he, he sent me some email after the interview, and he said, hey, yeah, both you and I sort of glossed over this, but in fact, the torture has not stopped. Even though the torture policy that was uh, the Bush and, and Cheney were pulling off after 9-11, that policy has stopped. But he says torture still continues today, even under Barack Obama. He wrote a letter to the uh, to New Yorker. It's in the the issue this month, the July issue, the one that has uh, Donald Trump doing a belly flop on the cover. So his, uh, his letter appeared there, and uh, he wrote that, Unfortunately, it seems unlikely that people who authorized and engaged in torture under the U.S. flag will ever be held accountable. A more urgent problem is that neither President Obama's 2009 executive order to stop torture, nor the Senate's recent passage of the McCain-Feinstein Amendment to the National Defense Authorization Act has completely closed torture loopholes. The 2006 Army Field Manual, in effect, the guiding standard for interrogation lies outside the norms of international law and practice. Beyond the manual's permission to create and manipulate phobias and engender hopelessness and helplessness, its Appendix M allows for the extended use of solitary confinement and sleep deprivation in cases involving unlawful combatants. 
The American public may not find these tactics as shocking as waterboarding and rectal feeding. But the United Nations and human rights organizations such as Amnesty International describe them as torture or cruel, inhuman and degrading treatment. Many victims are known to suffer chronic trauma and psychosis or to become suicidal. The McCain-Feinstein Amendment codifies a ban on some of the more lurid interrogation methods. But between the lines, official authorization of torture remains. That's according to Dr. Yosef Brody of the uh, uh, psycholo- uh, uh, I'm sorry, psychologists for social responsibility, our guest earlier in the week, who says, yeah, torture is still going on, uh, even under President Obama. Thought that was worth noting. Okay, my thanks today to our producer, as always, Desi Doyen, to our booking goddess, Cynthia Cohn, and to my guest, Tia Oso of BlackAlliance.org. If you missed any portion of the program, you can always download it at bradblog.com or over at iTunes, where we hope you will give us a swell review to make the program easier for others to find. Uh, you can find you you can and should find and follow us on the Facebooks and the Twitters at the Brad Blog. You can also email me. I am Bradcast at Bradblog.com. We'll be back with you. Same Brad time, same Brad channel tomorrow. Until then, you can find me at bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Good luck, world.